What I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Nicola Rahani is a Royal Society University Research Fellow and Professor in Evolution and Behaviour at University College London. She specialises in the evolution of social behaviour in humans and non-human species. She's the author of The Social Instinct, How Cooperation Shaped the World. On this topic, she delivered the Voltaire Lecture for Humanist UK in 2021 when she was awarded the Voltaire Medal. Most importantly, she's a patron of Humanist UK. Nicola Rahani, welcome to What I Believe. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Now, the subject of your extremely successful book that was out last year, The Social Instinct, was the evolution of cooperation in nature. And we'll come on to that because it's such a stimulating, interesting topic. But I wanted to start with asking you why you personally were first uh, interested to get involved in studying this field. What was it motivating you? So I started working on cooperation during my PhD um, when I worked on a species of bird, actually, that lives in the Kalahari Desert called the Pied Babbler. And they are an extraordinarily cooperative species. They live in tight-knit family groups and everyone works together to a common goal, which is raising um, the offspring of the dominant pair. And I think situations like this um, in nature often strike us as puzzling because when we think about things from a Darwinian perspective, that tends to emphasise self-interest and every individual looking out for themselves. And what we see in these species like the babblers that I worked on and um, the meerkats of the Kalahari that that you might be familiar with and, and lots and lots of other social species is that individuals actually seem to put aside their own self-interest in pursuit of a common goal. And reconciling the existence of that helpful behaviour with this overarching theory of how we understand the world, which is Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection, is something of a puzzle. So how do we, um, on the one hand, accept this theory of Darwinian evolution, which emphasises competition, How do we reconcile that with all these examples of cooperation that we see in the world around us, in our own species and in other species on the planet? And I think that answering that question and finding the ways that evolution has solved that puzzle um, is the thing that sort of keeps me going research-wise and, and, and is the thing that I think is so interesting about, about working on cooperation. So you're intellectually stimulated and intellectually curious about it. That was what really uh, tipped you into into the field. Yeah, I think mm. it's just one of these enduring puzzles in science that's um, that's 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 sort of. Uh, I suppose, like all scientists, you find yourself a question that's meaty enough to keep you going for, for your whole career, and you kind of you pick away at it, and you do you try and put your brick in the wall in a way of the kind of scientific knowledge that we that we try to create. 
And the context for cooperation seeming so interesting to you is was the uh, otherwise pervasive belief in the value of competition or the explanatory power of competition in, in biology. Is that right? Because that's what everyone thinks about. You know, if you speak to um, person doesn't know anything about science, like me, for example. Um, I would say, oh yes, competition—that's what it's all about. You know, that's what I understand of um, evolution or of natural selection and so on. Competition is the is the is the theme, right? And I think, in part, that that you know, that obviously, like the famous book in this field is the Selfish Gene, and I think for a lot of people, they don't really get past the title of that book, which confirm the worldview that it's like oh you know genes are selfish it starts with the gene and it just kind of propagates outwards from there and I think that um you know even though Dawkins wouldn't you know Dawkins himself actually emphasized the role of cooperation in creating life as we know it on earth but I think for a lot of people that idea of the selfish gene has come to um, support this worldview of that we live in a competitive world that it's a kind of you know it's a jungle out there everything is zero sum if you lose I gain if I gain you lose and and to sort of um, give us this idea of ourselves as sort of nakedly competitive beings and I guess m- in my book, I sort of pick up where the selfish gene left off in a way and start from the premise that actually cooperation is everywhere around us, whether we look, when we look in the mirror, we see ourselves and we are, you know, wonderful uh, conglomerates of cells and genes that are all cooperating to make us individuals. And if we look outside our window, we see evidence of cooperation all around, you know, so the streets we live on, the houses we live in, the trains that take us to work, these are all examples of how we've managed to cooperate to create the societies that we live in. And so, in my view, cooperation is actually, uh, it's so pervasive that we actually take it completely for granted a lot of the time, I think. So this important concept for you, I mean, how how how, how would you define it? What are, we, what are we meant to understand when you're talking about cooperation? What does it mean? Yeah, so I think there, in, I think cooperation is one of those terms that's become a bit hijacked by sort of uh, corporate speak in some ways. So often, like if you go on Google Images and you type cooperation in the image um, Google image search bar, you just come up with a bunch of images of people doing, frankly, weird things with their hands. So like variants on handshakes and holding hands and other weird things. And I think in many ways, cooperation has become synonymous with this idea of like, teamwork and uh, sort of cheerfulness and lots of other kind of bland corporate metaphors but in reality cooperation has a much deeper meaning and it is a much larger concept Um, and in an evolutionary sense when we talk about cooperation we're talking about interactions where individuals work together and where it often involves one party or maybe both parties in the interaction paying a cost or investing to help the partner such that um, benefits are generated for all individuals involved. And so, you know, we can talk about cooperation among the genes inside our body that put aside their own self-interest in the service of creating a unified organism. We can talk about cooperation among the cells of our body, you know, some of which agree, as it were, to have a life of servitude and to be non-reproductive. And that's the majority of the cells in your body, actually. 
and only a handful of which will be able to make it into the next generation as sex cells. And we can also talk about cooperation, of course, among individuals. And there are lots and lots of lovely examples, you know, both in our own species and in other species on the planet as well. This idea of um, cooperation involving one entity, at least, paying a sort of cost um, to benefit another seems to be quite an important concept in your work and in your thinking about cooperation. It was something that was new to me when I first heard you describe it. Could you say a little bit more about that? Why is it, why is it, you know, why is that interesting? I suppose um, it's interesting because whenever we see individuals paying costs, if we want to understand how those kinds of um, behaviours could be favoured by selection, we also have to understand how they those costs can be um, repaid via downstream benefits. So to make that a bit less abstract, I always think it's helpful to kind of have an example. So one example that I think resonates with people is um, an example that concerns ants, actually. And these are a particular species of ant called Ferelius pusillus, and they live in really hot, dry regions in Brazil. So these ants obviously live in a big colony like all ants do, and their nest is underground. But during the day, they will come to the surface and they search for food. And when the evening comes, they go back to their nest. So when they go back in the nest, the majority of the ants will go down the tunnel, they go into the safety of the nest overnight, but a couple of them wait at the surface and they wait for everyone else to go into the tunnel before they then start dragging and carrying grains of sand and other debris to completely conceal the nest entrance from the outside. And in doing that, they seal their own fate because they can't survive overnight above ground. Um, and in fact, this kind of costly act of self-sacrifice isn't the, the final cost that these workers at the surface pay because once they've ensured that the nest entrance is concealed from the outside, they then uh, march off into the night and go off to die somewhere that won't attract predators to the location of the nest. And so in this kind of poignant example, what we see is a very obvious cost that's being paid by some individuals in that colony, the ultimate cost, actually, of sacrificing themselves to protect their relatives that that are in the nest underground. And from an evolutionary point of view, we want to ask, well, why would an individual ever do this? Why would they ever pay a cost to benefit some other individuals and in the case of the ants the the way that we can explain this is very obvious because they are related to the individuals that they help and so they benefit via what we call kin selected benefits by performing this act of self-sacrifice but in many cases individuals will pay these these kinds of costs maybe not the ultimate cost but they'll pay all kinds of costs sharing food sharing resources things like this to help other individuals, and they may not be related to those individuals. And understanding how those kinds of behaviours have come to exist on this planet and why they're so common, actually, is a central sort of question in in the research that I do and that lots of other evolutionary thinkers um, are concerned with. And your work... um obviously is of relevance not just to these other animals that we've been discussing but to human beings as well 
Yeah, I mean, totally. We're the, we are the ultimate, you know, we are, cooperation is so much part of our societies that we, you know, every uh, every morning you get on the train and you you can, you know, you stand there with your faces in someone's armpit, you're kind of on your way to work. And um, it's a miracle in some respects that we can, you know, not only that the train and the platform exists, but that you can get on that train with a bunch of strangers that you don't know in such confined circumstances and reasonably expect to make it to your destination unharmed. And, you know, if that train, there's a really famous remark by the anthropologist Sarah Blafahardi, who who made a comment about being on a transatlantic flight and saying something like, well, what if I were sat here with a bunch of chimpanzees and not humans? You know, this would not be a pretty sight when the plane finally got to its destination and there'll be all kinds of appendages and limbs would be strewn about. And, you know, we kind of laugh about it, but that's actually the reality. Like chimpanzees are hugely intolerant of strangers that, you know, they really will attack individuals they don't know that are from neighboring groups and they will kill them or maim them and kill them. And so, you know, humans are extremely cooperative in ways that we sort of don't even really think about a lot of the time. And these are the things that you've uh, come to believe or to uh, the opinions you've come to have about the nature of human beings, um, that that we're very cooperative, that compared with other animals, we're certainly extremely cooperative and that this is somehow amazing. What else is, what else is your research or engagement in the wider field made you think about you know, humanity. So I think I would caveat that um, statement about humans. You know, I believe humans are inordinately cooperative, but I also, I think my view is a bit more nuanced than that in that um, I also see that cooperation isn't always a good thing. And so, you know, just to take some uh, obvious examples, like war is a hugely cooperative endeavour, and yet that causes you know, that causes lots of suffering and misery for, you know, people that are affected by things like this. And on smaller scales, we see things like nepotism and corruption and bribery, which are all also examples of very local scale cooperative interactions that generate wider costs to at a societal level. And so I think that while we are it's true to say we are hugely cooperative. I think sometimes that's sort of taken as a shorthand as for bit for thinking, okay, you know, this is great and cooperation is this thing we should be aspiring to and it's really virtuous and beneficial. And the reality is that cooperation can be, you know, harmful in some cases and it can have victims. And I think that I think that uh, appreciating that 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 is the case can help to reconcile this this sort of view we have of ourselves as you know we we are cooperative but we're also sometimes that cooperation can be harmful right and that's the I think that's sometimes where people struggle with this idea of humans as cooperative because they think of all these scenarios that seem bad like war and harming each other and things like that and often don't really. I think it's not intuitive to think that a lot of those bad things also stem from cooperation. So as far as you're concerned, that the, the, the existence of cooperation, the concept of cooperation, it's just a, a fact. It's, a, it's something true about our species, but the, and the results of cooperation might be morally negative or morally positive or morally neutral. You're not saying that, you know, cooperation, yay. 
exactly yeah exactly and like we it's not kind of like this um i guess i would say it's like not this kind of panacea to all the problems that we have it's like you know yes we do need to cooperate more but it's also we need to cooperate in the right ways because there's a bunch of um ways that we could cooperate that wouldn't help us to solve any of these sort of global pressing issues that we're facing Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK, the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. Where is it that you think you've had uh, got the, uh, the the moral values that you do have then from personally, um, if you're thinking about things sort of above and beyond uh, what we've talked about so far, cooperation? Did you have a particularly, um, did your upbringing particularly shape you, your parenting, your school or, or where you came from? What do you looking back on it think uh, most shaped you? Well, I did go. I did go to a convent school. So oh, did you? Yeah, I'm actually technically. I I'm mean, none. <laughs> I mean, I'm technically a nun. <laughs> now the big reveal. Um, yeah, I mean, I I was brought up very loosely as a Roman Catholic, and I I think I always um, I don't think I ever really fully bought it that that you know there was this omnipresent being that was watching everything we did and I think I onboarded quite a bit of the Catholic guilt I I think I definitely oh dear (laughs) but um I I don't know really I suppose you just try to live your life the way you know you try to act in ways that you feel that you would want you know you treat people as you would want to be treated yourself and you act in ways that you feel like if everyone did this uh, things would be broadly okay. So you know, you try not to do things where you think, okay, as far if I did this, and then if everyone else did it, this would have a really bad outcome. But yeah, I don't know to what extent my kind of semi-religious upbringing influenced my thinking. I don't think it influenced it that much, but I also I'm quite wary of saying that because I think as as a, you know, our species is famously bad at knowing the things that influence our decision making and thought, thought processes so I guess it's just a a feeling I have rather than being anything very verifiable but you have sort of in, in the way that you've expressed your own moral sentiments or the basis of your um moral beliefs a very common one you know this this question of treating other people as you wish to be treated that that is a sort of um result of our cooperative instincts isn't it our social instincts yeah i mean that so you know that there are certain moral values or moral rules that we see in pretty much every society on the planet and i think are pretty universal in human society so yeah this idea of um reciprocity which in some places is called the golden rule so that would basically be things like tit for tat or you scratch my back and i'll scratch yours um one good turn deserves another like all these idioms we have that enshrine this principle of do unto others as you would have done to yourself is is a very general this is a very general principle that we see in all 
the society in every human society in which we've looked for it we see that this people generally endorse that principle even if they don't always abide by it um i think then you know i think i'm also very much a product of having been brought up in a western democracy and the kind of moral values and rules that go along you know that that are, that are that are part of our cultural milieu that we all find ourselves in so our very particular notion of fairness and um what you know the the extent to which we perceive our moral obligations to be you know to 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 everybody you know we ought to treat people impartially we shouldn't um favor our kin or our our friends when you know and things like employment decisions and things like that all those kinds of moral values are very much like part of the cultural inheritance that people who are born in in societies like the UK and the US are kind of endowed with during I their I suppose childhood. a certain culture I mean there are cultures also within western society that don't accept that sort of duty of impartiality as well I mean yeah plenty so, of people who value you know um plenty of communities classes and and, and places in the UK that value kin more and yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm talking in pretty general terms. About... Are you talking about sort of educated, middle-class, liberal Western <laughs> society, possibly? Uh, yes, and I suppose what I'm talking about is um, this idea of the weird, so what Joe Henrik calls weird, so Western, educated, industrialised, rich, democratic. So the weird countries um, or, or weirder countries tend yeah. to have certain values and norms that are largely endorsed by people who live in those societies um, and and where we can see differences in in those in the norms that people endorse um, as compared to what we call non-weird societies so sort of more less universalistic and maybe more collectivist cultures and so yeah de- like massively overgeneralizing but i think probably being born into the kind of society I have been born and raised in would have impacted on, you know, the kind of moral values that I went on to develop. I think this is a really interesting thing to talk about a little bit more because obviously you've you've got you, you've spoken a little bit about from your academic work and from your own the foundations of your own moral beliefs about that sort of the things that you think are natural, as it were, without you know attaching too much to that word just purely descriptive, natural um, uh, aspects of our existence as, as social animals. And, and, and you're now saying, well, actually, there's, lot, there's lots that's specific. There's lots that's culturally specific um, in our beliefs, in your beliefs and values too. And there's so much debate that rages today, isn't there, uh, between different people who say, um, you know, who try to say where our values have come from in the West, particularly I'm thinking of those who say they've come from a religious uh, um, you know, foundation, um, and those who say that those who sort of given up on on universalism, given up on the idea of global values and global culture. There's lots of retrenchment into national particularism these days, and and it's really interesting where people's different dividing lines or beliefs about where the dividing lines are between what's common to human beings and their societies and what's very individual. Um, is there anything more that you think is is very individual to you because of your cultural and social context other than this uh, idea of uh, moral universalism or treating people 
you know, objectively and so on. Is there anything else you can look at yourself and think, yeah, that's another artifact of my time and place? I, I think so. I think that, um, so, so I think you're right that some of those, when we're talking about cooperation, basically, quite often we will be running into trade offs about it's not just a case of should we help or should we not help, but often we're facing decisions about, well, who should I help? And should I help the, is my duty to help these individuals over here or is, or is my duty to help those individuals over there? And sometimes those things have to be necessarily traded off against one another. And I think that the source of like lots of the disagreement that we have in society nowadays about uh, where we can kind of come into conflict over values and what we think is morally appropriate um, concerns like how we resolve those kinds of trade-offs. So to kind of make that a bit more concrete, I guess um, if I'd, you know, if I'd been born in a much more collectivist society, um, I might, you know, if you ask people questions, things along the lines of, is it right to, would it be right to lie in court to exonerate a friend who had committed a a dangerous driving offence in order to get them, you know, would it be right to lie to basically get them off the hook? Would it be right to hire your cousin for a job rather than a more qualified um, candidate instead? Um, And so when you ask people, what they think is the right answer to questions like that. Like I have my own personal, you know, what I think is the right thing to do in both those scenarios. But if I'd been born in a different place and been raised with a different set of of moral values and moral imperatives, I might answer quite differently. And, and, and I think that um, one thing that I um believe if you like or that and also that I argue in the book is that we have to I think it's really important that we even though we you know we have our own view of what's moral in those kinds of scenarios and that might be different to what another person thinks and it's really important to um try to resist interpreting those differences with a moral overtone so like to basically be like well we're wrong and you're right and you're immoral because you think hiring your cousin is the right thing to do or that lying in court is the right thing to do um so it's not just awareness of that of of the relative nature of moral values that's important to you it's actually some degree of acceptance of the relative nature of moral values that's important to you I think it's I think it's massively important to accept that people differ on what they think moral values are and what moral norms should be endorsed because um, if we can't accept that people will differ on where they think their moral obligations lie, then we there's no hope for us of ever kind of um, having productive dialogue or being able to, you know. Um, We'll just always be fighting about things. And I think more than just accepting it, I guess the thing that I find interesting is to try to understand why those differences arise and where they come from. And um, one thing that seems to be really, really important in understanding why some people would prioritise morality as being kept within a relatively small circle. So some people, the people who basically would say that their moral duty is more towards their friends and family than it is towards others, if you like, um, compared to people who would endorse some more universalistic kinds of norms. Those differences seem to stem 
um, in large part from material security, and which is basically the ability that people have to meet their basic needs on their own without being reliant on others. So it's things like, can you get the food you need? Um, if you fall ill, will you, you know, will you be looked after? Will you have access to healthcare? Um, have you got shelter? Are you safe from anyone who might potentially want to attack you? So these kinds of things all f- feed into like material security essentially. And in places and times when people have lower material security, they tend to have to rely more on one another. Like they tend to have to rely more on their close social network to get by. So you see um, in places where people have are less able to meet their own needs independently, food sharing is much more common. So if I have food, I'll share it with you. And if you have food, you'll share it with me. Um, you're much more likely to see patterns of what we call need-based exchange, where if if I need something and you've got it, you give you ought to give it to me. And if conversely, if I've got something and you need it, I need to give it to you without any expectation of repayment. So you see these really strong social bonds where people are asking really quite a lot of one another. And it sort of makes sense, actually, when you think about it, that if you're living, the more you're pushed towards that low material security end of the spectrum, the less likely you are to endorse impartial norms of cooperation and the more likely you are to say, well, actually, I need to look after the people that look after me because I rely on these people and I, 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 you don't have the luxury in some respects of extending investments and impartial cooperation to strangers and random people you've never met so yeah I think basically understanding where those differences in morality come from is in part like will helps us to understand and to accept that like why we have these differences in some ways Cooperation and our social instincts, moral trade-offs, the cultural specifics of certain values and accepting and understanding that. Nicola Rahani, thank you for telling us what you believe Thanks so much. Nice to talk to you. That was Nicola Rahani speaking for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the eighth episode of the fifth season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about Humanism, Humanist UK and the work that we do, you can find out more on the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see there, please consider joining as a supporter or member. You can also find out more about humanism by purchasing the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, available at all good bookshops.